So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people With the goal well, of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so with the right innovation, uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty World's energy. biggest energy agencies believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more than We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. special. Hello and welcome to Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Jeff McMahon. Today we're talking about renewable portfolio standards and whether they deliver. In the absence of a comprehensive national climate policy, many state governments have implemented their own policies aimed at reducing emissions within their borders. Renewable portfolio standards, called RPS, are perhaps the best known of these policies requiring that a certain minimum percentage of a state's electricity come from solar, wind, and other renewable sources. Advocates argue that these standards can reduce carbon emissions and offer consumers more choice, but there have been long-standing questions about the precise impact of these policies on electricity rates and their overall efficiency as a climate policy. Do portfolio standards increase electricity rates? By how much and through what means? And how cost-effective are they as an emissions reduction strategy? Today, we're listening in on a conversation that features Michael Greenstone. He's the director of EPIC and the Milton Friedman Distinguished Service Professor in Economics at the University of Chicago. Melanie Kenderdine, a principal at Energy Futures Initiative and the former director of the U.S. Department of Energy's Office of Energy Policy and Systems Analysis. Melanie led DOE's policy and analysis initiatives under Secretary Ernest Moniz. And Mackay Campbell, managing partner of Blue Water Strategies, LLC, and former staff director of the U.S. Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. The panel is moderated by Amy Harder, an energy reporter at Axios. They discuss new cutting-edge research that sheds light on these and other questions, and they discuss the economic and climate impacts of renewable portfolio standards. Epic just released a working paper that says that RPS programs increased electricity prices by as much as 17% over 12 years. Renewable portfolio standards also increased renewable generation, and they reduced emissions, but the paper says those reduced emissions came at a high cost. And the paper says that the cost of abating carbon emissions through an RPS policy has been as much as $460 per metric ton, many times higher than conventional estimates of the social cost of carbon. Let's listen in on their conversation. I want to quickly go to our experts here, Mackay and Melanie. Uh, do you agree with the, the report's findings? Um, I have to, uh, I think it's preliminary and a couple things I would say. That the, the electricity sector is the easiest to decarbonize of all the, of all the intermediate uh, electricity, intermediate and your end uses. 
it's by far the easiest. It's not surprising to me that the, uh, the costs per ton are expensive. Uh, we just did, uh, had MIT do some modeling work for us and it was $1,000 a ton econ economy-wide. Um, this looks like a bargain, okay, when you're, t you're talking $1,000 a ton. Uh, the, the modeling... Was that, that an RPS? Uh, no, it was economy-wide, okay, and, and electricity is the easiest to decarbonize. An economy-wide RPS? <laughs> Pardon me? Or, or economy-wide clean energy. Economy-wide economy -wide, uh, 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 cap on CO2 emissions. Mm. And how does that, how does that uh, uh, play out uh, across the economy? Mm. And, and we were looking at California in, in particular. And uh, it, the, the modeling had a set of technologies in it. Uh, it did not have battery storage in it, okay, so, so I don't know whether that would add the to the cost or reduce <coughs> the cost, I'm not sure. And, um, and so I don't think that the, the, um, the uh, numbers here are particularly outrageous. Um, $167 a ton is, uh, is more than the social cost of carbon. We spent a lot of time on that in the Obama administration. I think we were, what, 40 to 45 $50 a ton and, uh, for the social cost of carbon. Um, all this says to me, it, it says a couple things, that um, uh, uh, we probably need a clean energy standard uh, uh, as opposed to a renewable a portfolio standard because because we should not be picking and choosing technologies, and uh, and an RPS is pretty selective in which technologies it chooses, and uh, and that doesn't accommodate huge regional differences uh, in how uh, different regions of the country are generating electricity. Uh, this region has a lot of nuclear. This region has a lot of uh, coal, and uh, and. <coughs> We ought to be looking at standards that accommodate and, uh, uh, and address uh, those generations uh, uh, technologies as well. So I don't think it's an outrageous result. And, and, uh, That's a great uh, endorsement yeah, for the final I don't think it's an outrageous <laughs> result. <laughs> yeah. um, Makai, what about you? Do you agree with the findings? I, I wasn't surprised at all. Um, I've always felt that for an RPS, an RES, a CES, whatever you want to, sets of initials you want to uh, approach it by, there's a foundational question that seldom gets asked, and that is, what are you trying to do? And I know that sounds really simple and simplistic, but in dealings with it in, in the Senate and dealings with it on the Hill, you know, you'd ask the question, what are you trying to do? Is your driver climate? Are you trying to stop emissions? If you're trying to stop emissions, then clearly you need to have a wider net, include hydro, include nuclear. Fierce resistance to that generally from the RES uh, proponents. Um, they'll say, no, no, this is to drive technology for solar, for selected technologies. And if that's the purpose, that's okay. But I think it's important to be upfront about what your purpose is, which gets buried way too often. So a question for those of us in the audience. Uh, raise your hand if you've seen or engaged in some of this Twitter activity that Michael has mentioned. Okay, so a decent number. 
Um, but for those of you who are thankfully um, not on Twitter, and stay off it if you can, if your job allows. Fortunately, mine does not allow, so I'm definitely on there, and I should have raised my hand as well. Uh, I saw some of that interaction. But there was a lot of pushback um, to this report. Um, some big picture and some pretty wonky, which we'll hopefully get to, to both. Uh, there was criticism from renewable energy trade groups, but also some economists from Harvard and other places. Uh, Michael, what criticism are you taking most to mind and will focus on in the peer review process, which to confirm is going to happen, correct? Yeah. No, uh, no, so uh, great, let's just level set. It's a working paper, this is valuable, today will be valuable, we'll get reactions, uh, and then we'll submit it to a journal and get peer reviewed. Um, well, I guess maybe I'll, uh, I was a little off put. There was a lot of question of like, why should anyone ask a question like this? Uh, and you know, here we'd had renewable portfolio standards for I don't know, almost 30 years and there wasn't an answer out there. Uh, and so it seemed to me straightforward that we should have an answer. Uh, on the substance, uh, I think, you know, we should probably do some more to unpack exactly what flavor of other pol complementary policies were implemented at the same time. Uh, and we have, we, we have controlled for uh, whether or not there's net metering, uh, whether or not uh, uh, there's a green power purchase possibilities, and then some public benefits funds. <coughs> and I think our measures of those are imperfect and we could probably uh, improve them. Yeah. You know, when we had our prep call about a week ago and discussed this, and Michael gave us the first look at our results, I think I said to him, Michael, you're going to take a lot of income in on this. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that incoming comes from a combination of sort of two groups of folks that, that intermingle. Um, they're the groups of people who fairly religiously d believe in the purity of certain sets of answers and the unacceptability of others. And, and I'm not saying they're wrong. I mean, that's, but I disagree with them, but that's where they're driven by. But then there are also, that combines strongly with the people who are the, have economic interests in produce in um, wind and solar and biofuels and all of these things. And they have powerful, there's a whole lot of rent seeking going on. That's not bad. I mean, anytime you do any policy anywhere, in, but anything in Congress that's going to affect people's economics, you're going to have all that involvement. You just need to be aware of it and be upfront about it. As Melanie? Uh, I, I just want to uh, uh, say that I think that the RPSs have contributed to both of the deployment of renewable technologies and the reduction in cost. And, and, um, and I, other, other favored industries, there was a Section 29 tax credit for unconventional gas, okay, unconventional uh, oil and gas. And, and we have had policies like that. That's a federal policy. These are state policies. Um, there have been policies like that for favored technologies over time. But we now, I think we have a, a, an urgent issue with climate change. Um, uh, the, the electricity sector is a narrow sector, okay, for, for, and we need decarbonization of, of all the sectors of the economy. We need to do it rapidly, and it's time to step back and look at what the lowest cost options are. Maybe this is the lowest 
Uh, I suspect not, okay, but step back and look at what the lowest cost options are and what is the best broad portfolio of both policies and technologies we need to be incentivizing in one way, shape, or form. So I don't want to uh, denigrate the progress that has been made in many uh, areas in renewable, uh, 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 from, from uh, renewable portfolio standards, but I think that we need to broaden our look and we need to do it rapidly. We need to do it right. And uh, it's time to step back and take another look. Here is my first lightning round question, which means that I ask you uh, to kindly respond in with just one answer, one word answer. No. <laughs> this one's not a yes or no, but I do have a yes or no uh, question later, so you stay tuned, Makai. Uh, presented with just the following two policy options. Which would you prefer, a carbon tax or a renewable electricity standard? Carbon tax. Carbon. It's one word. You said <laughs> one word. A carbon tax. Yeah. Yeah, carbon tax. Carbon tax. So I asked this question. Do you want to talk about why? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we don't need it. I have a follow-up question. <laughs> so I asked this question to display that there's a lot of agreement for that preference of policy, and that uh, underlies some of the criticism that has come out about this report, that uh, Michael, you and others who worked on this are sort of gunning for a carbon tax, and so you want to dump on renewable mandates. Um, can you respond to this criticism that you're trying to push an agenda? Uh, yeah, I am. Uh, the agenda is that we should find, we need to be, like, the climate problem is real and urgent, and we need to be ruthlessly searching out the cheapest uh, reductions, so that's my agenda. Uh, and. Had it turned out that renewable portfolio standards were better than everything else, hooray. I, you know, I have no stake in what the answer is. Uh, and it's a thing that it, in my, I actually don't have a Twitter account, so people read me these Twitters. Uh, <laughs> Why aren't you on Twitter, Michael? Because uh, I, I can write papers. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I, don't, I think sometimes I think there's confusion about what the goal is. I think, you know, the enemy here is CO2. The enemy is not like that there's not enough of a particular technology in the generation system. Like, that's not causing climate change. What's causing climate change is CO2. And somehow that's being lost, and at least on Twitter. That's, that's my foundational question yeah. I was referring to. What are you trying to do here? Yeah. So if, wanna, if I could say, a carbon tax is a tax on all carbon. A renewable portfolio standards only electricity. So you're only solving, you know, I don't know, 16, 18, 19 percent. You're only addressing whether you're solving it or not. You're only addressing uh, a, 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 a relatively small percentage of the overall picture. So carbon tax gets you uh, a, a, a much broader, uh, is, is a much broader approach. Uh, policy approach to addressing what I think is an urgent problem. Yeah, I continue in on that. With a carbon tax, you pay for every ton of carbon produced. Right. With an RPS, you're dealing with the, you know, whatever percentage, and then after that, it's all free. You know, you, you use as much as you want. And as you know, as I, sh I should just add on Mackay's point there. Since we are at the University of Chicago, uh, like, how could it be that all the information for where the cheapest tons to get are embodied inside legislation? When, you know, like that in this building, that would no one thinks that. Uh, what people think is that there's a price signal and the free market will find a way to search out those cheapest reductions. Some of them probably come from just efficiency improvements of fossil fuel plants. You know. 
Again, renewable portfolio standard two affects different regions of the country, costs in different regions of the country uh, different amounts. Depends on what your generation source is. And so, so an RPS is, is uh, and I have a, I love slides, okay, so I like your slides, but slides showing the, ge the generation, yeah, they are, okay, they're animated. <laughs> A generation, <laughs> generation types in the different regions of the country, and and uh, this region, this region gets hit much harder from an RPS than say California. Although California, forty nine percent of their generation in twenty sixteen was gas, so so even then you're talking about displacing that much generation, and and you need to do it now, so. So this crowd is laughing at slide jokes, so I think we have a good wonkiness <laughs> among us. Yeah. Do you have a quick comment? Yeah, just a, uh, basically it's a caveat about support for carbon tax, though, but it's also one of the reasons I like it better than an RPS. The caveat is anytime you put a price on energy, whether through an RPS or through a carbon tax, or anything, you're putting a, a potential drag on the economy. Energy is foundational. It affects every single thing we do, everything we buy, every th activity we have. So. With the carbon tax, you at least have the possibility of some refunding that back to the people in some meaningful way. I've always felt the biggest single obstacle to adoption of a carbon tax is the argument about how you spend the money. When we d dealt with the, back during the cap and trade days and stuff, and we were, t we were proposing an alternate c carbon tax, and everybody said, okay, yeah, yeah, but just 2% for this and 2% for that. That's where it's gonna be the toughest political aspect but you, unless you're refunding that, you're just putting a major drag on the economy. Are you going to get Senator Murkowski to support a carbon tax? We worked for her on the development of a carbon tax as part of the alternatives to cap and trade. But what about today? I don't know. I, I'm not working for her now, so I wouldn't <laughs> presume to speak. But presumably you, you chat with her from time to time. Yeah, we do. <laughs> Well, keep us posted, because I asked the senator about a carbon tax, and she said she was open to discussing it, which is more than she said in the past, but she didn't come out to support it. Uh, I, I want to go back to the politics of this, because I think even a lot of uh, renewable energy mandate backwards might concede that, sure, economically speaking, a carbon tax would make the most sense, but we live in the reality, uh, and there are 29 uh, RPSs, and many of them just in the last few days have been ramped up. And so one big picture complaint of this report was that uh, it's doubling down on a path of just politically unpopular carbon taxes. And I, and I do think there's evidence of that, even though I know, Michael, you said the emissions is 9% versus 18%. Um, but in Washington state, which is my home state and one of the most progressive in the nation, they rejected a carbon tax. You saw protests twice. twice uh, and in France, they're protesting over it. And the, I think there's some trouble in Canada over this issue. So I do think carbon taxes are more politically controversial. One environmental advocacy journalist, David Roberts, tweeted uh, that this report was designed to be a, quote, crap bomb <laughs> on Twitter. And as just a brief side note, isn't it weird to say that out loud, crap bomb? But it's okay to say on Twitter. I think we should make a new rule that everything you say on Twitter, you have to say in real life on stage. At church. At church, and then maybe people wouldn't say some of the things that they say. But anyways, I, I digress. 
Um, the point, what he was saying was that this report is designed to stifle progress right as it is ramping up in the face of the Trump administration that is stifling progress at the, at the federal level. So can you talk about you know, the art of political possibilities and, and why you continue to think carbon taxes at the federal level are actually possible? So uh, let me start one thing. Uh, I know you don't think this. But one version of that is that we should not even bother to look at the costs and the benefits. We should just full steam ahead, no matter how much it costs. Uh, and even if we could go on a different road where the tolls were lower, we should stay on the expensive road. And so whether or not, and it's not that I'm live or die on a carbon tax. I, I think we should just have basic facts. And the idea that all these states are going to ramp up uh, RPS standards supposing our estimates are true about the expense at very modest levels of RPS, I think it doesn't really pass the smell test. Uh, and so I think policy should not necessarily be driven by what comes out of cost-benefit analysis, but it seems like an important input. And we didn't have that information on RPS before this. Go ahead, uh, well, I, I keep going back to the fact that an RPS is for electricity only. Now, you can, you can assume that you are going to electrify your economy and then, and then pass those emission savings through uh, and spread them throughout your economy, but, but we need urgent action. I don't see, there aren't technologies uh, for industry and high, high quality process heat. There aren't technologies for, for heavy duty vehicles. They're, they're, uh, uh, you want to electrify all your buildings, you're going to have to have major, major changes in residential uh, 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 energy supplies. And, and so I'm more concerned about the urgency of climate change and less concerned about whether it's this policy or that policy. Renewable portfolio standards only address electricity. We have a wider economy that we have to, uh, we have to decarbonize. We need innovation in major spaces in transportation and, uh, and industry. And, um, and uh, I would prefer to just get on with that. And, and, uh, but how do you do that when the politics are so? Well, here, I think the politics of all of this is tough. I mean, it's the reason that no country is meeting its goals worldwide. None of them. Mm -hmm. we're, we're not, we're not going to make the two degrees, 2%. Um, we're asking people to make immediate sacrifices today to avoid a harm tomorrow. And no matter how much they believe in the harm tomorrow, that's a tough request. So you have to get, so you have to accept the fact that politics are tough no matter what path you take. At least for carbon tax, you are having, I think, a growing group of people who are coming out and saying, if you have to do this, and we're reluctantly coming to that belief, many, I mean, many folks are, What's the best way they do this? You have, you have major oil companies now supporting carbon tax. People who are adamantly against anything, you, you know, just recent years. You have groups of major C Fortune 500 CEOs that have groups for carbon tax. They're competing major pro-carbon tax groups that are pretty active in Congress right now. So the Green New Deal is a very popular um, but very vague proposal 
um, being batted around Washington, D.C. I'm guessing many of us in the room are at least familiar about it and know that it exists. Um, we won't really know the details of that proposal um, until early next year. The, the backers, I interviewed them not too long ago, the, the think tanks that are behind creating it, and they're going to have actual policies by early next year. Um, just a quick um, survey of the panel. Are you concerned that it will include things like a renewable portfolio standard, and are you going to try to urge them to do something like a price on carbon? Oh, I think uh, I would hope that what it'll be informed by evidence. Uh, and so what the costs are from doing renewable portfolio standards or the costs from doing energy efficiency. Uh, and all the evidence that we have in front of us is that the cheapest tons come through carbon pricing. Uh, and so uh, they've been tremendously successful at raising interest in this. Uh, and it'll be very interesting to see what that means in practice. But you know, I don't really know very many people who like to go to the supermarket and buy a tomato for $10 when you could buy it for one. Um, I, I uh, concur with Michael that it has helped, the Green New Deal has helped raise the profile and the importance of addressing climate change. We are uh, uh, more interested in a Green Real Deal where uh, that has a, that has focuses on flexibility, optionality, um, uh, 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 regional differences, and seeks to accommodate those. Another huge focus on innovation as well, and and uh, seeks to accommodate uh, the different needs and energy mixes and energy infrastructures of different regions at the same time. Uh, at the same time, uh, they uh, practically address uh, a growing threat of climate change. And, um, and so applaud the effort, um, uh, the devil's in the details, and my details would probably be very different than, uh, than those from a New York member of the House, freshman member of the House. So. I'm going to be less diplomatic. Um, I don't think the Green New Deal is green, I don't think it's new, and I don't think it's a deal. Um, I think anybody who reads gets, actually reads the whole thing. It's much, much more content about wealth re redistribution than there is about energy and environment. I mean, that's just a fact, read it. It's not new, it, looks, it reads pretty much to me like a dumb reha dumbed down rehash of Naomi Klein's book, This Changes Everything, where she said, we're going to use climate change as the lever to change capitalism. And the, re the only positive thing I can say is the reaction to when she said that, a lot of Republicans then said, well, in that case, we don't believe any of it. Whereas at least now, you're starting to say, have Republicans say, okay, we need to have an alternate response. That, that part I will give it as positive. And anybody who thinks it's a deal hasn't even begun to look at potential costs associated with it. Uh, I, I, uh, just a personal opinion about this is I think one of the most damaging things on, from both sides about the climate debate is it's given to wild exaggerations and overstatements from both sides. And I know people feel so passionately about it that they have to, you know, if we don't do this, New York's underwater in 10 years or the ice caps have melted or the water. But the problem is then 10 years goes by and it hadn't happened and it causes people to be more and more difficult to believe things. We need, desperately need on both sides 
you know, just a real look at true of impacts. And one of the reasons I appreciate the study so much is I think that's part of a step towards one part of what are true impacts of this and how can we deal with it. And as, as a reporter covering these issues, I often describe it as uh, whiplash because I'm going from the Trump administration that doesn't acknowledge climate change to the Green New Deal that is mostly talk and little action, but the talk is important because it's generating a movement and that's uh, important, something to, to consider. And then we go to something like this incredibly detailed uh, but controversial report that Michael has done about the here and now of these actual policies. And so whiplashing between those three different areas um, is, is difficult in trying to, to compare apples to apples. It's, it's not easy to compare the Green New Deal to a renewable portfolio standard because we don't know what's inside the Green New Deal. Uh, and, and that kind of brings me to one of the other uh, criticisms um, because we are doing live peer review right now. Um, and that's that you treated all of the, the various 29 different um, RPS standards the same when they're really quite different. And then that, that'll lead me to another question about the different types of energies that are in the mandates. But Michael, can you just address this yeah. criticism that you can't actually get an average from 29 different okay, policies? Okay, so I think there's two ways to do it. The first is we have no federal climate policy to first approximation. So an RPS is kind of a federal climate policy. So we probably want to know how that one's doing. And yes, it's an average across 29 of them. The paper gives a perfectly, gives an answer to that question. Uh, the second is, did we learn something that might be informative about state number 30 that wants to do it? Uh, and this is where I'll come back to Ishan's excellent snowflake analogy. Uh, yeah, there's little differences between uh, them, but they basically all incent the same technologies. Uh, the, you know, uh, solar, wind, small hydro, uh, and some biofuel, yeah, some biofuel, and you know, sometimes they have slightly different definitions of those. So I actually think that, and we can all say, yeah, yeah, look at Maine, they really like wood chips, but in Arizona they don't like wood chips. Like, at the end of the day, the differences are pretty small. They're all basically trying to do the same thing, and I think a policymaker in state number 30 actually could learn quite a bit from this. You know, the, I thought the attack about the, is a basic complaint about averaging. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, <laughs> you work with what you have. And using the snowflake analogy, the fact that all the snowflakes are different doesn't mean you don't look outside in the morning and say, we got a couple inches last night, you know? I, you know, I also think there's an undercurrent, as someone who's not on Twitter, of, uh, <laughs> uh, of like, if I close my eyes, I can't see it. Like, you know. This or if it's not on Twitter, it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. These are facts, and so like, uh, what are we supposed to do, ignore facts? That doesn't usually work out that well. Okay. I have to say that, that uh, we actually need to uh, step back and look at what is the status of the other technologies that would support intermittent uh, renewables, and, and, um, and how the electric grid actually operates and, and some uh, a more detailed understanding of that, I think, is important. And we just looked at California, uh, a detailed study for deep decarbonization in California. We uh, uh, looked at wind and solar generation for every day of 2017. There were 90 days with no wind, little to no wind. Um, there were periods of, of 10 days in a row with little to no wind. 
And, and right now, I then look at the status of battery storage, which you need if you're going to go all renewables, which you would need uh, in order to manage uh, the 10 days in a row with no wind. And I look at PJM region in the, the uh, country. PJM's uh, battery storage uh, duration is about an hour. Okay, they're clearly using their battery storage for ancillary services. California, which we looked at in detail, um, there was a very small amount of battery storage with 10 hours. Almost all of it was four hours. And so you start looking at that and the status of that technology. What are the other options for, um, for uh, uh, storage technologies? Pumped hydro, very, very geographically limited. Um, uh, uh, compressed air storage, you know, it could get you some. Uh, but I, in the end, how do you manage a system um, where you're requiring the use of intermittent renewables, where you have extremely limited duration storage and don't see huge changes in those technologies over the next five, six, seven years? Um, uh, you've got to manage a system and how the system works and understanding that is important too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd also say that while I think the development of better batteries is crucially important, that generally we choose to ignore the life cycle environmental impacts of batteries on the scale that we're talking about using and there's very little discussion about that and I think there should be some. I think that's partly because those types of environmental impacts are a long ways away. They're probably in China. And it's a lot easier to put that right. in, in the back of your mind as opposed to a nuclear power plant or a coal plant that's in your backyard. No, Five-year-olds mining cobalt in, uh, right. in Congo. Mm -hmm. so. you know, there's one point I don't want to escape from all this. So yeah. the price on carbon, so I think what's the problem we're trying to solve? There's two market failures. One is that when you pollute carbon, it's causing climate change and that's unleashing uh, a series of bad things. Uh, the second is that there probably are spillovers in the development of new technologies. So the Melanie firm invents it and then my firm gets better at making it because somehow I hired one of her employees or something like that. Uh, and I think there is room, and not just room, there should be very robust uh, R&D policy. Uh, and that would be an important part of any smart uh, policy. Yeah. So, so that shouldn't be lost in all of this. So going back to the, the political viability of these things, we are seeing states uh, have broader energy mandates, not including more than just wind and solar. Uh, and some of these are going to be costly. Um, and maybe that's OK if you want to address climate change. You're seeing nuclear power subsidies. You're seeing California's law is a subset is, uh, is renewable, but the overall is clean, so including things like CCS, for example. Do you think, given the political viability, that those seem to be gaining steam right now, is there a way to make those effective? Or is it sort of like putting lipstick on a pig that you're still not going to like it? No offense to pigs. No lipstick. Well, I think oh, Melanie's been making an important point that they're all, uh, all, they're all almost all about electricity sector only, and so that's just a portion of emissions. Although California's is it's California's is different. Uh, California's always different. Right. Washington State just passed a very ambitious electricity goal, but it's already an incredibly clean electricity system with hydro, so, and they don't mention anything about the transportation sector. 
which I think is, goes to your report about how even though the headline numbers are very big, it's actually not making a big difference because a lot of the things are baked in. Uh, and then I'll just make a plea here again. I don't think the politics, the revealed politics of pricing carbon are as bad as people right, as either. a conventional yeah. wisdom. I don't either. Like our, your dear neighbor to the south just uh, passed a cap, or aren't they about to pass a cap? Oregon, Oregon? yeah. yeah. Uh, so we'll, we'll put that on the board too, along with Reggie in California. Uh, and the politics are just- What about at the federal level? Well, I, I think carbon taxes, for instance, I'll use an example probably don't work well as a state-by-state -state situation because you're disadvantaging your state versus its next-door neighbor. On a federal level, you can have border adjustments with imputed carbon value and use, uh, for instance, if you were importing Singtao beer where, there, where there's no carbon tax or no cost of carbon, you can apply a carbon value at, at the customs. And that is an incentive for foreign, not moral leadership, it's an economic reason to encourage foreign companies to do their own carbon costs. If you're importing Heineken, where the cost of carbon has already been taxed and built in, you don't. So there, you can protect the country as a whole while at the same time providing economic incentive to other countries to come along with you. Um, I do have one very quick lightning round concluding um, question. And because we're out of time, I do ask you to answer with just a yes or no. Um, so in five years, do you think Congress will have passed a major climate change bill? Yes, yes or no? Yes. Yes. Well, I propose that we convene much closer to five years to see how we're doing on that front. I want to say thank you to everybody for joining here in Chicago and online. Thanks to all of you for listening. This event was part of EPIC's Energy Inquiry and Impact series, which explores the latest energy data coming out of the University of Chicago and their impacts on policy discussions. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on EPIC's website at epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm Jeff McMahon.